This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett. I'm actually away for three weeks. Commencing next week, Juliet will be putting some of the interviews over the past weeks on the programs. But the program today was recorded at the weekend. You'll be hearing Nell Potter speaking about an El Nakba exhibition at St Paul's Cathedral in Melbourne until the 28th of October, a joint exhibition by Free Palestine Melbourne and Palestine Israel Ecumenical Network. Coral Winter, member of Socialist Alliance and journalist with Green Left Weekly, recently spent two weeks in Timor-Leste and will be reporting on the country 26 years since independence. Academic and writer Richard Renoski talking about cluster bombs and Craig Nielsen from Adelaide preparing for a 2,700 kilometre walk from Perth to Adelaide to increase awareness of the Palestinian cause for justice, self-determination and human rights. But we must hear from Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was for the last time for a couple of weeks. A week, Jane, listener, when people with disabilities were whooping it up after that her, her, then his, most gracious majesty's commission, brought down its report after a mere four years, and given the myriad of problems and disadvantage uncovered, action is so urgent, the government said it will act immediately to hold a review into what recommendations it will adopt, and hopefully will review the review and send that review to a Senate committee to review, which will then be reviewed, but expects to have an answer in less than four years. Um, What would you call moving slowly? We ask Minister Rushmore and more. Uh, This is too important and urgent to contemplate moving slowly. She was all concerned. Now, I must admit to a heinous error. I just don't know what came over me last week. Sincere, sincere apologies to all caring employers who were so upset after we described as another fly in paradise a tax bill aimed at getting some tax out of multinationals attacked by the caring business class as having unforeseen consequences. Presumably, we said, like, they might have to pay some. They weren't consulted, they complained, and this is my heinous error. We know that when the government wants to change laws for, say, armed robbery, I said, it always consults the armed robbers and murderers union. Sincere apologies to all caring employers, to the caring business class, for comparing them to armed robbers and murderers. They are not armed robbers. They do it legally, without the armed bit. Meet award standards which legalise wage slavery, for instance, Well, mostly, sometimes they make the odd error due to the intricacies of the awards. Interesting that, how they can draw up the most complicated contracts, ensuring they win whatever happens, and then become instantly dyslexic the second they try to read an award. Apologies, because they only resort to the armed bit in extreme circumstances, and then legally, utilising the legal arms of the trained killer forces and the... Uh, sorry, constabulary to follow their orders, enforcing the law. 
not enforcing the law, but exploiting legal loopholes to interfere in the election cycle and election process, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, the greatest ever, ever attack on democracy as poor former Big Supremo and would-be Big Supremo again, Donald Trump or the poor, is confronted daily by the... Um, by the uh, bugger, the thing didn't jump properly. I have to go back to that line again. Sorry about this. I'm going to sub you up. Come on. Okay. Not enforcing the law, but exploiting legal loopholes to interfere in the election cycle. The US of the UN of the US of the world, the greatest ever, ever attack on democracy as poor former Big Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Donald Trump or the poor is confronted daily by the greatest corruption ever, ever in the latest of the legal attacks on democracy. The judge, horribly biased and very corrupt. I wouldn't call such a biased and corrupt person his honour. The prosecutor, fraudulent and grossly incompetent, proof of the election interference campaign that every single judge and prosecution team in every single case is the most biased, most corrupt ever, ever. If anyone still has the slightest doubt about this judge being the most biased, most corrupt ever, ever, that doubt must be shattered by his biased, corrupt ruling that Donald shut up and preventing poor Donald making disparaging and untrue statements about court staff just because a beleaguered Donald merely told his social media audience the judge's clerk is the girlfriend of democracy Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. An abuse of poor Donald's right to free speech, exacerbated by the prosecution lawyer describing him as an habitual liar. That says it all. Now we know who the liar is. Summed up best by Donald himself in another moment of logic and admirable restraint. The single greatest witch hunt of all time. And that from a man who would never resort to hyperbole. On a positive note, the legacy of his last time round dragged on as Capitol Hill was transplanted to Madison Square Gardens for the sub-flyweight raving idiot title bout between the extreme right. I, I need to explain a slight adjustment to the normal boxing ring here. The red corner is abolished altogether. The blue corner has been renamed the extreme right corner. But then that corner has been stretched, so the ring is no longer a rectangle, stretched with the ringside seating removed to create an extreme, extreme right corner. With the extreme, extreme right KOing the extreme right in the first round, at which point not only its lights went out, but all the lights went out. And last heard, they were still stumbling around in the dark, falling over the prostate victim, asking if anyone knew where the light switches were, how to get the lights back on. To conclude all that, we're still search, doing a search, unsuccessful so far, to determine whether Donald has ever, ever uttered what could be deemed a sentence in the grammatically correct sense. Also victim of a biased legal system, great contributor to the common good, fossil, behemoth, woodside with profits, thwarted by an upstart, terrenulous, non-land, non-people woman who claims as a traditional owner she should have been consulted over a little bit of offshore seismic activity at Woodside with planned Scarborough Gasfield. A further delay to 
a gas project of importance to all true blue Aussies, all of us. And how do we know this is critical to our lives? Well, Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist told us, beware the rainbow serpent, bolt through the head alerted us. The federal court has just shown how the race politics of our elites will make us more stupidly superstitious and a lot poorer. This economic vandal, Raylene Cooper, also claimed a little bit of seismic activity would disturb the song line of Wales. Talk about superstition. Thank goodness, speaking for all of us, who so cherish Lord Rupert's contributions to public discourse, bolt through the head nose, song lines, the rainbow serpent are superstition. How irrational to let superstition delay pouring more good, good, highly profitable fossils into the atmosphere, while a son of God, born of a virgin mother, put up the duff by a holy ghost, walking on water, raising the dead, turning water into wine, rising from the dead and then ascending, along with the virgin mum into space, is fact, not superstition. Bolt through the head knows all that. But his warnings were franked by the prophet Trump's survival great fossil behemoths who know what's good for, uh, what's good for, what's good for something. Anyway, who told us the government is ignoring major Asian trading partners' demands for LNG, liquefied natural gas, and this would hurt our economy and our reputation as a reliable polluter. Franked even further last Friday by the former head of Tokyo Gas, who warned any disruption to the LNG supply would have huge impacts on millions of people. And all agree, well, I'll clarify that, all except Bolt through the head agree, because he knows there's no need to address climate change because there is no such thing as climate change. It's a, it's a conspiracy of the warmest based on no stronger evidence than the climate changing. All except, assure us, polluting with gas, CO2, methane is essential to a transition from polluting with gas, CO2, methane and associated fossils. Impact on millions of people. And like, providing all that pollution will not have an impact on billions of people, on all people? I'm sure caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo constable Peter Duffer and Jacinta and Warren Munding the Waters would attest that that railing Cooper destroying the economy and postponing all that pollution transitioning will only become worse if we vote yes. If you don't know, stay ignorant, like us. Battling superstition and ignorance, for that matter, isn't the only barrier confronting the Minerals Profits Council. Workers. Workers egged on by an ignorant socialist government. It has, quote, accused the government of using road safety as cover to deliver unprecedented power to the Transport Workers Union and drive up costs for all businesses. Listen to this for industrial disaster, listener. Imposing obligations on the industry supply chain participants in promoting equitable workplace relations, a safe and sustainable industry, and sustainable competition or fairness. Good God, have we ever heard anything as threatening and superstitious as equitable workplace relations, safe and sustainable workplaces, and competition and fairness? It's an evil union plot. 
Why, the Minerals Profits Council representing the great fossil behemoths knows what's good for all of us. Uh, yes, <clears throat> it agreed. We must have inequitable workplace relations. As Tim Garner make more and more said so wisely, workers must know they work for the boss in unsustainable, unsafe workplaces. And if we don't have unfair competition, how can we make a killing? See? Just pure common sense. Unlike those naive socialists and their paymasters, the evil union bosses, who have no respect for good bosses. Notice the dynamo who lost the past two state elections for the caring business class party, the lobster with a mobster, has been promoted back to the shadow front bench. <laughs> who says that lot is short on talent? Finally, the recent Socialist Party conference passed a motion asking the government to consider appointing a worker representative to the $250 billion futures fund headed by former caring business class economic guru Peter Cost, the workers' yellow bosses, and stacked with good, responsible, caring business class members. Well, <clears throat> the government obviously considered it. This week it appointed Mary Rinst, real name, to the board. A real working class background as 20 years with the Macquarie of Wealth Bank. Well, I suppose she's sort of a worker. Oh, and Mary chairs a not-for-profit, the Hunger Project, which aims to end hunger and poverty. And hasn't that worked well? In fact, given the altruism and community commitment of our banks and great corporations, it's hard to believe there is hunger and poverty. Good afternoon. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. new to Melbourne, I found a Food Not Bombs flyer on the road, and I had like this feast with a carrot, and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff, and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Slacker Radio. Say goodbye to the work week with Jordan and Tilda. Anti work, anti poverty, anti fascist, pro worker, pro union.
Golgitta. 5.30pm every first and third Friday of the month. Live on 3CR Community Radio. Last month, the community organisation Free Palestine Melbourne joined with the Australian Jewish Democratic Society in presenting a forum featuring journalist and author Anthony Lowenstein and artist, poet and author Sarah Salah. This month, they are partnering with the Palestine-Israel Ecumenical Network for a multimedia exhibition using historical images, cultural artefacts, maps, poems, installations, artwork and video to tell the story of Al-Nakba and its ongoing impact on generations of Palestinians. The venue is St Paul's Cathedral on the corner of Flinders and Swanson Streets in Melbourne and it continues until Saturday the 28th of October. Today I'm speaking with one of the organisers of the exhibition, Nell Potter. And now, was there one person who had the idea for this or was it a joint effort to stage what appears to be an ambitious and all-encompassing multimedia exhibition? Initially, an Israeli who was active in the Palestinian Solidarity Community Group, Free Palestine Melbourne, first came up with the idea. Um, if you like, I can share with you Nakshan's own words as to how this Nakba exhibition came to mind. So Nakshan says, I grew up in Israel in a Zionist home and even proudly served in the IDF as a combat officer. It took many years before I dared to doubt my knowledge and to expose myself to the true history of Palestine over the past 120 years, a reality that was hidden from me all my life by the indoctrination of the State of Israel. In Australia, too, it pains me to see the cruel reality in Palestine in the distorted way in which the public sees it due to the success of the Zionist propaganda. The urge to bring the truth to the public burns in me. This is a preliminary and basic step for bringing about a change in Australia's attitude towards the Palestinian struggle for freedom and rights. I thought the way to do that was to present the real story to the public through facts and evidence. My dream was a Nakbat museum similar to the Holocaust museums that we see in so many cities around the world. The hope is that when people enter such a museum, they will be shocked into seeing the reality and acknowledge the atrocities that took place and in Palestine are still happening, unfortunately. And then this will cause a change in consciousness. It is challenging to set up a Nakbat Museum in Melbourne at this stage, but this exhibition is the closest thing possible to it. Nakshon took his idea to a Free Palestine Melbourne meeting and it progressed from there. Can you tell us a little bit about the Palestine-Israel Ecumenical Network? Yen is an organisation that I work for. So initially, so the exhibition came to mind um, and was talked about during a Free Palestine Melbourne meeting that both Nakshan and I both are active with. I was quite, became quite heavily involved with the logistics of the exhibition and given its location at St Paul's Cathedral, I then asked for the Palestine-Israel Ecumenical Network to become a co-sponsor. So PN, it um, primarily is an Australian Christian organisation that has members from different denominations. It's been going since 2006, or set up by church leaders. And we, you know, we have people of all faiths or none who 
are members and supporters of PN. And we focus primarily on educating the Australian church and Christians about the situation. And we have a lot of close connections with Palestinian Christians. So this has been a joint, this exhibition has been a joint working together of Free Palestine Melbourne and Yen together. Well, you've got the plan and the passion. How did you find a venue? The venue, that was proved a little bit to be difficult. St Paul's was the fourth venue that we approached. We started working on this exhibition concept earlier this year as we were hoping to have it set up to commemorate the May 15th, 75th anniversary of the NACBA. Um, after submitting three proposals to different venues and having them denied for various reasons, we approached the church. Now, I had previously been in contact with the dean at the church on a different matter relating to Palestine in the preceding months, so that connection had already been established. Then I learned that St Paul's had a gallery space actually within the church itself, and knowing how supportive they are around a number of social justice issues, we thought it was worthwhile to approach them, and we're so very grateful that they said, yes, it's a, it's a perfect venue. Well, there's a lot in this exhibition. Can you talk about some of the people who have contributed their artefacts or their paintings or their whatever to be part of this exhibition? It's primarily a informative exhibition, so we, we source all the material off the internet. We do have physical items, cultural items, like keys and coins, embroidery that were donated by a few Palestinian, local Palestinian Free Palestine Melbourne committee members. And also we have a suitcase installation where we place lots of items and stories relating to their own NACBA experience. But the majority of the information that we are sharing is like maps and poems and, and archival photographs. There's a video also that we have that's on a TV on a loop playing all day, every day. And it's a short video about Checkpoint 300 which shows the current day reality for Palestinians and their, their, you know, how difficult it is for them to move around going through checkpoints all the time. And that was produced by a colleague of mine, Peter Morgan. Uh, so we don't have a lot of actual art. There are some uh, paintings that were done by children in Gaza. So another member of the Free Palestine Melbourne, he was able to obtain these images, so we've reproduced those. And there's a few sort of images we've had from other sources like a print from a Palestinian artist called Silva Mansour and some street and some wall art images as well. So there's a core of us, there's four people who, who were primarily involved in setting up the exhibition and you know, curating all the content and then there's other people who have been involved in promoting it and, and staffing the exhibition as well. Who chose the name? No place to lay my head. It came from the World Council of Churches World Week for Peace in Palestine and Israel, which was on this year between uh, the 16th and 23rd of September. So each year, the World Week for Peace in Palestine and Israel takes up a different theme and supplies liturgical resources to churches to use during the third week in September. And this year, they chose No Place to Lay My Head to connect with the 75th anniversary of the Nakba. And given St Paul's strong support for refugees, we thought everything aligned perfectly to hold the exhibition at the church using this theme. So it was basically 
derived from the World Council Churches Program. Wondering what the reaction has been with people who come through the exhibition and see what's there. Do you talk to people or do you, members of your group talk to people as they go through and find out their reactions? Are they fully aware of the situation in Palestine? So we don't have the, the exhibition staffed all the time. When I've been there, I've certainly had a few small conversations, but because it's actually in a church itself, we have to be mindful that you know we can't engage in long conversations with people. It's, you have to be very you know sensitive to the, the surroundings and people who are attending the church aren't going there necessarily to see an exhibition. They're going to see the church, and so but uh, there were so many people going through. So when I was stationed there a few times, dozens of people would be walking through and and just stopping and reading. Some would read the whole exhibition. I saw one person actually filming the, the video, just the whole time and filmed the video. Others would just really engage with each other and talk about it slightly and silently. I've had a few people come up to me and just say that they knew about the situation or how difficult it was. And obviously they were, they were quite moved by it. And I've spoken to a few people from the church itself and they've said how moving it is and they've had a good response from it. So that, the church is packed with people coming through all the time. So it's just a fantastic opportunity for people to see something about and hear and understand about Palestine that they may not have ever known before. Do you know of any other exhibition that's been on in the past like this one? I think there was something similar at the Immigration Museum a while back, but I'm not, I'm not totally clear on this. Now you've got it in one place. Is it time when this is over to perhaps take it round to other places and inform and because that's the the whole idea isn't it to inform people of the situation in Palestine that's right so we do we have talked about this being a roving exhibition both within Victoria other states and potentially a virtual exhibition as well Um, the bulk of the content is on file so it could be easily shared along with the proposal um, and video footage of how it looks set up and other relevant information so we will certainly discuss this once the exhibition has, has come to an end on the 28th of October. So it's been a really good long six-week period of, of exhibiting here in Melbourne. But it's, we found that it, um, it's quite powerful and something that could be easily transported to other locations. So it's something def- we're definitely looking to. A fair bit of work for you, personally? Proposal and, and as we're getting the material together. But it's, it's been a great team effort. Um, it's done something different to contribute and... It's, it's come up really well, so we're very happy with from the initial idea from Nakshon through to the execution and, and how it's all set up and, and the reception that it's receiving. So we're very, very grateful and thankful that it's come together and we're, and we're hoping as many people as possible get to see it. So we, we do really thank you for allowing us to um, talk about it on your show. Well, it goes until the 28th of October. Are there certain times that you can go? On whenever the church is open, but... Whenever there are church services or events, they do rope off the exhibition area. So it's best for people to look on the church's website to find out when the services are happening. So you can just go to www.cathedral.org.au and then on the home page, just scroll down a little bit, there's a, a link you click that says this week's services and events and it will tell you when it's going to be closed off seven days a week at various times throughout the day is open. And it's also very important to combine groups like you've got PIN and you've got Free Palestine Melbourne and that's happening 
more and more where groups are getting together? Often, yes, yes. We do often do lots of things together. Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, they do draw groups together as well. And we deliberately wanted the exhibition to to stay open until after the Palestinian National Flag Raising Ceremony, which is going to be held at Federation Square on Friday the 27th of October at 5.30. And at that event, there'll be lots of different Palestinian organisations represented, having stalls, doing various things. So that's a good opportunity for people to learn more about Palestine is to go to Federation Square that evening and they could pop into the exhibition, which is just across the road at St Paul's beforehand. Well, congratulations, Nell. It looks as though it's great. Wonderful, and I'll make sure that I get there before it closes. Oh, that'd be great. I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Jan. Appreciate it. I've been speaking with Nell Potter about the multimedia exhibition telling the story of Al Nakbar, titled No Place to Lay My Head. And it's on until the 28th of October at St Paul's Cathedral in the city of Melbourne. And you need to go on their website, the church, and find out what times people can go and see the exhibition. And, of course, on the 27th of October, there's the flag raising at the Federation Square just across the road, so you can just nip off across the street and see the exhibition then as well. The fears are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes the fears and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. Hey Anne, mm. where else would you hear about progressive economics? Well, you can definitely hear about it on 3CR Radio, Radio MMT between 5.30 and 6.30pm the second and fourth Friday of each month. Radio, Radio MMT, MMT.
Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, Free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Gumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. Twenty-six years on since independence in Timor-Leste. The same faces, those of the resistance leaders, have been in power since that time. And many believe that the young, 60% of the population, are being left behind. In 2022, Timor-Leste rated as having the highest hunger and malnutrition in Southeast Asia, despite the 19 billion sitting in the Timor Petroleum Fund. Together with her partner, Jim McElroy, Carol Winter spent two weeks in Timor-Leste recently, and I spoke with her at the weekend. Carol, that was not your first visit. When was the previous one? Well, um, yes, we were in East Timor in the year 2000, and it was just after the ghastly massacre of 1999 by the Indonesian military when they were leaving uh, Timor-Leste. And um, the United Nations was then in um, running the country. There were lots of burnt-out buildings and not many people around and no traffic, <laughs> pretty ghastly. I mean, they were still sort of recovering from the horror of that um, 99 uh, year when the 30,000 were actually um, murdered by the Indian army as they left as a retribution and revenge uh, for losing the referendum. And so um, to see it now in 2023, it was amazing. I mean... It's very lively, there's thousands of motorbikes now and cars and very busy, but still incredibly poor, you know, which is a massive problem. And the legacy of the United Nations running the country is that they've got a dollar economy, which just makes everything so expensive. I mean, it was good to see East Timor 23 years on, but, you know, still so many problems and so many difficulties. When you start to talk to the local people or the, the grassroots people, as they say, and you hear their stories, what's some of their stories? We were privileged enough to sit in at um, a course being taught by a lecturer from Sydney University on peace studies. They were doing a master's in peace studies and there was about uh, 30 students, and some of them women. What happened is um, they showed the film. Well, we talked as what it's like to be sort of alternative media. We were given a chance to talk about um, Green Left and we handed out a lot of Green Left to the students and what it's like to run an alternative media uh, newspaper and the difficulties and the problems. But, you know, they were really interested because they were talking about how media influences, you know, war and peace and convinces people of a necessity to war when it's not necessary. But anyway, um, but after that, they showed the film um, Circle of Silence, which is about Shirley Shackleton and her fight for justice and the fight to find out the truth about what happened to the murder of her husband, you know, the fire, the Bilbao fire, 
1975 when the Indonesian army invaded um, Timor, Timor Leste, and um, uh, and that was a really moving film. But after it, a couple of women in the course started just talking spontaneously to me about what happened to them. One of them was a 13 year old at the time, and what happened in their area because they were right on the border with West Timor. And they were ruled by a governor of the province who was actually a Timorese, had been brought up by the Indonesian government. And he was ruthless and bloody and horrific. And he was raping all the women in the area. And so, and she used to see him come into their cafe because they had um, pool tables. And what happened is the family, in order to protect the older girls who were um, 16 or 17 or a little bit older, they would send them away and she, as a 17-year-old, and probably, you know, they had a few scruples about raping a 13-year-old, would have to serve this ghastly uh, governor, this ghastly, you know, brutal trader. And, and um, yeah, she was just terrified. They were just terrified this whole period. And, what they, and that was the sort of thing they had to do. Did you hear any stories of how they actually stole the children and sent them to live and be brought up by Indonesian army officials and their families? We interviewed a woman whose uh, name is um, Joviana Duterres, who works for the um, Asia Justice and Rights um, non-profit organisation, human rights organisation, which has offices in, in um, Dili. And um, she told us about all, yeah, the children who were just stolen by the Indonesian military and taken to their families in Indonesia um, with, you know, the Timorese having no say about this whatsoever. They were just stolen, brought up. They changed their name, so no idea sometimes what their original name was and they were brought up in Indonesia. So they were trying to sort of bring together and repatriate a lot of these children with their biological parents in East Timor but it was really really difficult you can imagine the trauma and the difficulty of these children readjusting to life in in Timor-Leste and with these family people they didn't know relatives they didn't know so it was really really difficult and then on top of that the the children who were um, the women who were raped by the Indonesian military often had children had you know resulted in children being born to them and it was really awful because we heard that the Catholic priest wouldn't baptise them because they'd asked for the identification of their, fa- their father. They didn't have the name of the father at all and so the priest would refuse to baptise these. They called them the children of war and uh, that meant that the women and the children were ostracised by the village because they then weren't part of the community and that, that was causing an enormous amount of trauma and, and um, difficult situations for these women. I'm wondering whether the Catholic Church is as powerful today as it was then in the villages. Oh, look, it's still as powerful. You know, it's still unbelievable. It's the most religious probably country. Although I guess that was all people had to hold on to was the religion and the priests have enormous power friend who I stayed with said that she was at a wedding recently and the priest during the wedding ceremony told the wife to she had to stay with her husband no matter what even if he was unfaithful or beat her or 
did whatever he did to her, she was obliged and absolutely important that she stay with the husband no matter what what he did to her. That was her role in life. And you can you can just imagine that. Oh, you know. It's a, such a patriarchal society. And whether the women can work or not depends on whether their husbands want them to stay home or give them permission to work. You know, that's all up to the husband to decide that. The Catholic Church is still so powerful. There was also the story that there's been um, well, several priests, but one in particular had been abusing children for years and years, decades. And um, the government defended him and, and the church defended him and there's no recompense and there's no... Um, he wasn't uh, removed from his office or, or whatever. He wasn't given a jail term, nothing. It was all just accepted as normal or as part of life and you just get on with it. So that was a pretty horrific story that the government, you know, officials supported his his position and, and wouldn't don't and think that that's normal and that's his right. There were some nuns that weren't there who were brave enough to stand up and help the women? I don't I didn't hear any of those stories. I'm not sure about that. There probably are and you don't hear that but yeah. It it is you know, the men just have so much there was an incident I, I realised it as soon as I got to the airport because I was with um, Jim McElmore, my partner and what happened is um, I had the money in dollars and you know the passports and I gave it to the official at the desk as they arrived at the airport to you know to pay for our visa and and Jim's behind me like a couple of feet behind me I'm doing all the um, negotiation and he, he talks to him <laughs> behind me you know <laughs> I've got the money and the passport and he doesn't look at me or deal with me. You know, it's only the male who's who's got only authority. So that's what it's like in in um, in Timor-Leste, yeah. I wonder if there's a legacy in Timor today of the way that the Whitlam government allowed the Indonesians to round, rampart over East Timor those years is that still remembered? Oh yes, absolutely. It's still so deep in their in their consciousness. You know what happened? Because we went to the museum. There's two museums, big museums. One is one of resistance, um, which goes through the fight against the um, Indonesian um, army, and there's another big museum called Chaga, which goes through which um, documents the torture and the imprisonment of those who resisted. And there we met a young woman who, you know, who was uh, fully aware of what had happened, what had taken place, because she lived in, it's Likasau, I think, on the coast, which is about uh, 20 kilometres north of or west of Dili. They were there during the massacre of 99, and she just said it was horrific, absolutely horrific. They were, so their, their village was actually burnt to the ground. Uh, you know, many people murdered and died in in that uh, massacre when they were leaving, which was probably just as horrific as the whole, you know, the 25 years of occupation by the by the Indonesian army. But, yeah, so there's a... a oh, yeah, I mean, they've really... They've put a lot into, I think, the remembrance of those 25 years of, of the fight against the Indonesian army and the struggle in the mountains and the guerrilla struggle against them. And so... You know, and when I saw that film, Circle of Silence, about Shirley Shackleton, it brought back, we fought a lot in Australia, but I think in the end we didn't really fight hard enough or really didn't 
you know, were aware of the horrific events that were taking place and it's just so so close. I mean, in, in the Timor Leste, just so close to our shore. A third of the population was murdered. That's, you know, like 300,000 people at least died in that struggle. And I mean, we were, had solidarity marches all the time and we did our best, but, you know, sometimes I think we didn't do enough. We weren't really aware of what happened. And I was so ashamed when I saw this film of what we had done and what Whitlam had done. It's one of his worst mistakes and worst errors. And you can never really forgive Whitlam for that. Okay, he gave the okay to the Indonesian government to, to go ahead with the invasion, he even told them how to do it. And also it was Kissinger and um, Ford, who was then president of the United States. They were there in Indonesia at the time. They also gave the go-ahead and told the Indonesian government to, to invade. And they said, oh, just wait until we've left the country. And so they waited until the next day after they had flown out to, to do, carry out the invasion. And, you know, you just feel so awful about what these poor people have suffered and what they've been through in these, you know, last, you know, that, that 25 years of the occupation is just unbelievable. People are all aware, but everyone would have lost members of their family to uncles and and cousins. And, and it was just, you know, so brutal and, and such uh, horrific massacres and such cruelty and barbarism. It, it really sunk home. I'm glad I saw that movie and talked to the Timorese people, and, you know, the museums and in general. And you just get an understanding of the horror that took place. Yeah. And on, on the, well, the other side effect of this is that, and of the patriarchy and the priests, and, is that in Joviana explained to us that the women who were raped, you know, there was women who, a woman who was, she knew who was picked up every day by the Indonesian military in, in, an, in an army car, jeep, and taken to their headquarters to be raped. She did that every day for years because to protect, she had to do it to defend her family. Well, these women who were violated and raped and abused have not been compensated and they're not taken as serious victims because of the patriarchal attitude. The government has looked after the veterans who are, and a veteran is defined as anybody who, who carried a gun during the occupation but they don't take into account the horror of the, and the and the victimization of the women and how the women were used and abused and and raped and violated and murdered and killed and tortured you know they're not considered important enough and the ADR were trying to get wrote a whole policy about um, reparations for the women and and um, recognizing the role they played to defend their families and what the, the price they paid during the war. And the veterans came out and said, no, we're not thinking about, we're not looking at that issue. We have to be taken first. We have to be considered first and, and they come second in line. So they don't get very big grants from the government for all the work they have to do to try and have these women, you know, restore their, or pick up their lives again in, in a, in a, a real in a real way, um, Ajar has made a film called Speaking Out, Contessay, and that's about the women survivors. And, and in it, one of the women, Maria Isabella, tells her story and what happened to her and how she survived the abuse. And so they they told me they don't have sort of normal psych, um, psychological 
They don't do psychological for trauma victims as we would do in the West. They have a group of women together and led by one from HR, someone from HR, and they talk about the abuse amongst themselves. So they, they all understand that they're not alone. They're not, it wasn't just one of them, it was hundreds of them and thousands of them. And, and they say, try and help each other get through this trauma. They have a program called Stones and Flowers. And a stone is something sitting in your belly or in your breast or in your heart, which is, represents the pain you've gone through in, in those horrible years. And the flower represents trying to replace the stone with a feeling of happiness. And so they try and help each other and realise that it just wasn't, they weren't the only ones and, and um, suffering. There were thousands of women who had suffered in, in this way um, and, and fought the war in their own way and, and, and suffered enormously. And, and there's a you know a whole process they call stones and flowers and where they talk about how much pain is left behind still that you're trying to deal with and that's the stone you know in your gut or stomach or heart or breast and trying to replace that with a flower. So yeah, it was very um, moving talking to Joviana because it's obviously a really really big problem to sort of rehabilitate the women who who went through this terrible suffering without. A lot of government support. They're dependent on HR is dependent on or money from Australian individuals as a site you can go on to to um, donate, and also from I think the trade unions in Europe uh, give them money as well. There must have been a number of children from all those rapes of the women, and those children now would be adults. Yes. Well, we didn't talk to we didn't meet any of those actually, actually, but. Ada also has this program in which young people, you know, either in high school or university, going to university, um, they organise courses for them. They mainly would have probably been born after the Indonesian left, but what they do is they organise a course for them, teaching them what happened during the uh, struggle, the effects of it, and um, they talk about justice and they talk about equality and they talk about... Um, women's events and they talk about lesbian gay issues and they give them a whole course on human rights and so maybe if they didn't or if they were too young to directly feel this you know they would have relatives who've gone through that anyhow they pick up a lot any students or from high school or university go there they do throughout a three four month course and then they go they encourage them to go back to their villages in, in outside of Delhi and try and change the lives of the women who were affected. They help the older women to get enrolment um, and, and an identity card so that they can get a pension um, from the government. And also they try and repair, help them repair their houses and their issues like that. And also just talk about, in general, human rights issues. And so that's, I think, how they maintain the young people in an involvement in trying to make reparations for this horrific war and the effects of it. So that's a really good course that AJAR carries out as well because, um, you know, obviously the issues of lesbians and um, gay rights is just not considered. Nobody sort of knows anything about it or the teachers and um, the schools don't have any idea what you're talking about when you talk about LGBT I um, issues, you know, it's just not in the vocabulary. I have no understanding of it at all. So 
they're trying to sort of introduce those rights as well, those human rights as well. So it's a big struggle. But you've got to remember also there's massive poverty because of the US dollar. You know, it was very expensive there. Like for third world country, it was ridiculous. The same prices as having a meal out in restaurant in Sydney, which you wouldn't believe. But um, because of the 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 dollar and US dollar is the currency, not not their own money. And so there's a lot of corruption in the government. They've got, I think, $16 billion sitting in a fund from the oil that they had to fight for from Australia that tried to grab it all and had to go to the International Court of Justice. But that hasn't filtered down to the grassroots. People are really, really struggling. And, and you know, we saw a lot of humpies and along the shore and really buildings just put up with, you know, a bit of tin and pine trees for a roofing, you know, woven together. It's it's really sad in a way that, you know, the government that fought for independence hasn't been able to deliver justice to the people. Looking at that coming generation of children, do they go to school on a regular basis? Well, you've got to pay school fees, so it's very expensive. A lot of children don't. I didn't see a lot of people in the street begging. It was a little bit, but not a lot. So, yeah. It was just seemed, you know, the cost of living was just so high. And unless you had gone, been able to go overseas and get an education in an American university or in Sweden or somewhere else or in Indone- or even Indonesia or even um, Singapore, you, you wouldn't be able to get, a, you know, a well-paying job. Um, there's no childcare. That all depended on the families, on the grandparents. You know, and I describe as my friend of Joviana's who would have to get up, you have to get up at five or six in the morning and get the grandchild, the child ready, the baby ready, and drop them off at the parents on the motorbike, and then go to work, and then come back the same way and pick up the children. So it's a really hard life. But one thing we did though, we did go across to the island Arturo, which is about a two-hour boat trip. On a huge boat across the ocean, sort of, you go apart. There's a massive trench, a 300, I think it's a 300 meter drop trench between the island and, and Dili. And um, we went there, and the boat was quite a, uh, a cheap price on the boat. And so that was packed with um, Timorese people. And you just go across to the island for the day, and um, you eat fresh fish at the markets along the beach. That, that was really lovely. And yeah, there were hundreds of, of Timorese on the boat. I mean, that was a, a, you know, a nice day out for everybody. And that was a reasonable price. But yeah, things are quite expensive and difficult. I'm sure you remember a number of years ago that Cuba actually trained a large number of East Timorese students to become doctors and the Cubans sent their own doctors to East Timor. Do people talk about that at all? Yes, we asked Viana about that and the doctors have come back and um, they are in the villages and, yeah, and um, treating people. It was, uh, the you know, patients for sickness, all sorts of illnesses. So that's been a really good contribution by Cuba to help the Timorese and their, and their health issues. Yeah, that was really, really good. Did you travel to the villages? 
No, not really. We didn't um, get out of Dili. We were relying on my friend for driving us around, and, uh, and it was it was difficult here to get out. But you know, there's a lot of Australians there who have. I've had a lot of Australian older women who have made sort of Timor their what do you call it? their their centre of activity and solidarity. And so they, I met uh, another friend, uh, June. Uh, June Norman, she was there and had, she brings presents for a family that she's sort of taken up with in one of the outer villages of Dili. There's 35 of them that she gives presents to every year. She goes there and tries to help them, you know, survive the sort of the cost of living and what's what's happening. And um, yeah, so there's there's a whole lot of group of sort of expatriates there who try and raise the issues in Australia of what the Timorese need. But, um, yeah, it's it's a struggle. And the Australian government's not doing a lot? No, no, no. They're still fighting, I think, over the oil. Well, the big issue now is I think the oil that's available in Timor is um, almost finished. So they want to build, I think Guzmau, who's just been elected as Prime Minister, wants to build a massive, use the oil revenues to build a massive processing plant so that the oil is not shipped through to Darwin but it stays in Timor in this process but you know that would cost billions and Woodside owns a third of that processing in the pipe I'm not sure how all that works out but most people think that's a really a, a really bad use of the oil revenues there really needs to be spent money on the schools and hardly functioning, you know, they've got no facilities, no toilets, no running water. The university is really run down, very little facilities and uh, technology available. I mean, there's some, but it's, you know, it's a fight moving to the way. So, yes, more has to be spent on the infrastructure and a whole lot of different issues like education, health, the hospitals. The hospitals you wouldn't go into, they tell me. If you need the blood transfusion even or kidney dialysis, people would have to fly to Singapore and somewhere else to have that that operation because the hospitals in in Delhi are just not the public hospitals just not serviced properly, just not have they don't have the the equipment or the just basic medicines and basic pharmaceutical things that you would need to survive that. So unless you've got money, you would not. Um, be able to survive a serious illness in Timor. The hospital's in a you know really decaying, really bad state, and you couldn't come to Australia because the costs are so high. If you're not, you don't have a Medicare card or you know, Australian citizenship. So it's yes, it's really sad to say. The, the you know the situation of the education system, the universities, the health systems are in a really bad way, and uh, Australians should become aware of that and sort of try and do whatever they can to help the Timorese people and help these conditions be known throughout Australia and our responsibility for what happened to in order to provide much more solidarity and support for the Timorese people. Well, finally, Carol, some positive images that you brought back with you. I know you've talked a lot about problems, but some positives. The people are so lovely. They're so kind, gentle people very friendly and they're very energetic. They're trying to do, I think, you know, whatever they can within the circumstances and 
you know, to look after their children and do the best for them. And it's a beautiful country. The beaches are just beautiful. It's totally unspoiled. And lush vegetation, a very, very beautiful country and the mountains and hills behind them. The big thing that could happen is to build a tourist industry because that would, you know, bring in a, a lot more money and people would be able to enjoy the country. That's what needed to be done in some infrastructure for a, a tourist industry rather than processing oil products. <laughs> yeah. You know, they've got a lot of energy, a lot of courage. They know what happened to them. You know, they're aware of the struggle that their parents and family have been through and they're going to solve these problems as best they can in the future. Thanks, Cora. And Cora Winter is a member of Socialist Alliance and a contributor and member of Greenleaf Weekly. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR This November, the Australian National Academy of Music presents a festival celebrating the music of pioneering American composer George Crumb. Across four thrilling performances, Crumb's dynamic and engaging music will be paired alongside music by Igor Stravinsky, Thelonious Monk, Edgar Varese and more from the 23rd to the 25th of November at Abbotsford Convent. Find out more and book your tickets at anam.com.au. The Australian National Academy of Music is a 3CR supporter. Three CR, stay tuned, stay radical. We demand the full restoration of all indigenous lands and resources, and we demand the immediate cessation of all forms of exploitation and destruction of our land. We're here to remind you of our sovereignty and our original demand from day one. It started with intentional genocide of our people around the round table in England. It's all lies here. Everything's a lie. It's a great opportunity right now to step into a sovereign, independent republic. We demand a treaty. We demand our lands back. We demand to stop black death in custody. I want to break free. Do you want to create safe spaces or become an employer of choice? for LGBTIQA plus communities in Melbourne's North. Pride in the North is proud to present their inaugural summit, Beyond the Rainbow Lanyard, taking place on the 3rd of November in South Morang. 
hear from diverse voices and help create change to improve the health and well-being of LGBTIQA plus communities across Melbourne's northern region, from Mitchell Shire to Hume, Whittlesea and Banyal local government areas. For more information and registration, go to www.pracc.com.au forward slash tickets. Pride in the North is a 3CR support. I want, I want to In April next year, Adelaide-based AFOA, its Australian Friends of Palestine Association member, Craig Nielsen, will be taking three months off work to undertake a charity work from Parliament House in Perth, Western Australia, to Parliament House in Adelaide, South Australia, a trip of some 2,700 kilometres. The work will help to increase awareness of the Palestinian cause for justice, self-determination and human rights. And Craig will be raising money for the children and mothers of Gaza. He'll also be joined by Stephanie Leonard from Act for Peace, who will share the wonderful story of how the Near East Council of Churches provides pregnant mothers and their newborns with primary health care in Gaza. The event was officially launched on the 30th September at the Pilgrim Uniting Church Hall in Adelaide. I spoke with Craig the following day and pointed out that his commitment to the people of Palestine must be an important part of his life and asked, was there a starting point of time for this? Yeah, it was um, just I was working, uh, actually just working at a service station and um, had friends that had worked in the, on the run uh, service stations here who were owned by a Palestinian man. And it just came up as an issue people started talking about. This is about 2007. And, um, you know, it had been one of those things that had sort of in the background news for, you know, in your life, different movies and things like that. And I just started to see that I didn't really know much about it. I thought I knew something, but I realised I didn't. And I just became fascinated and and then more. And I think uh, a big change came when I was... At, I went and saw a play called My Name is Rachel Corey, and it was a, just a one-hander play. It showed here in Adelaide, and I, I sat through it. And I was really sort of shaken up about it um, and went home. I can remember just bursting into tears and thinking, you know, just can't, you know, first, I, I, I can't let this stand. And it sort of just grabbed hold of me from then, and I decided I was going to, do something about it. I was going to get involved. I couldn't sit there. It's also, I suppose, because of part of my faith as a Christian, I sort of heard this idea that, that what's called Christian Zionism, this idea that as a Christian we're obliged to unconditionally support the state of Israel, in, and particularly in its clearing the land of Palestinians so that all Jews can return. So I, I found that idea as unbiblical and offensive, and so that sort of added the impetus. And yes, yeah, so it was around 2008 that I, I think 2007, 2008 that I, I, without knowing it, I sort of made a commitment then, and it just sort of got bigger and bigger. I went to Palestine twice, uh, and I wrote the book about Christian Zionism, which I, uh, which I self-published, and then it got published, uh, publisher. Um, got hold of, uh, of me a copy of it and wanted to publish it for me as well. And um, but also I decided I didn't want to just read books on it. 
I wanted to go over there and see what was happening myself. I wanted to see, you know, get that first-hand view. And so I, I think I did a, a three-week tour, uh, and then later I went and spent three months living in a, a village called Jayus in the sort of north northern part of the state uh, for around to, uh, the West Bank and worked as sort of a human rights observer going around and checking, the, uh, the uh, monitoring the checkpoints, the agricultural gates, going to house demolitions, interviewing people who'd been arrested, um, you know, demonstrations, all that sort of thing. So it just probably about 2007. So far as the walks commitment, it was after just seeing a few people in Australia who had just committed themselves. There was a, a man called John Salisbury who walked from Melbourne to Adelaide and a lady called Margaret Kassar who's been running a, uh, for 13 years, she's been running a protest every week in Rundle Mall, um, a protest group there. She's barely missed uh, a week in 13 years and that sort of really inspired me as well that that's the sort of will that it sort of takes for these things. Um, did it? Yeah, and so that's yeah, pretty much where it started in 2007. Just for those who don't know the story of Rachel Corrie, what did you learn oh, that? Oh, okay, so Rachel Corrie's a girl um, brought up in America uh, in a, a fairly liberal church tradition. It wasn't really what you'd call, I think, a real, you know, sort of evangelical conservative uh, tradition, but it was a, a, a tradition where she was, as a young girl, very inspired to do something about the world and the Palestine issue made a big deal. So when she was about 23, I think, she went to Gaza and to work there as, I think it was part of, oh, I'm trying to think of which group she went with, a particular group that sort of you could do like a three-month uh, sort of traineeship there. Um, I'll think of a minute. And anyway, she was living with a, a family in Gaza. I think he was a pharmacist. And a bulldozer's turned up to his house to knock this guy's house down. And um, she was in full high-vis gear and with a crash helmet. And she went out there with a loud hammer and said, this is illegal, you can't do it. And she stood pretty much, you know, where the bulldozer was going to go. And the bulldozer just went over and killed her. Yeah, so that was terribly tragic. And she, I'm sure she's only about 24 uh, when that happened. And... No one was, you know, in the end, the Israeli courts just said, you know, she put herself in harm's way, and so that was sort of bad luck. Yeah, so that was the re truly tragic story. And, um, yeah, that really sort of, oh, it really touched and inspired me. I just thought, you know, here's uh, a story that needs to be told. So I dedicated the book, my book, to Rachel Corrie. Just go back to that first trip you went to Palestine. What were you expecting and what did you find? You know, I'd heard the stories about the uh, the evictions and the house demolitions and the checkpoints and, and pretty much what I'd heard about is exactly what I found. I was, you know, pretty a bit scared. I was, strangely, I, was, I felt far more frightened when I was in Israel than when I was in Palestine. I felt like the Israelis were going to, treat me as a real enemy, uh, you know, coming in and, and saying bad things about their what they're doing. The Palestinians, in the end, I found them far more friendly because I thought, okay, you know, I'm a Westerner, they're going to be a bit suspicious or something, and, and I'm a Christian and, and lots of them are, are Muslim. But none of that really eventuated. It was uh, 
quite different. But I also found, I expected to find a bit of racism against Jews, a bit of anti-Semitism, but I didn't find any. I don't remember in any of the times I went hearing just negative ideas about Jews. For them, it wasn't really, what was going on wasn't about being Jewish. They saw, many of them recognised that Zionism and Judaism are quite different. And this was about what the government was doing and not necessarily what people, the individual people were doing. So we had Jewish people come into the West Bank on the tours that we were with and there was just no problem. You know, there, there, there was no issue there was no you know singling them out or something to argue with them or anything like that at all um the poverty was probably worse than i thought it was i'd never sort of seen some areas that was really really tough and just the infrastructure just sort of being such a mess like you know and how you you survive there there's no room for any growth of infrastructure uh, and yet what you see all the time, you just look up on a hill and you see settlements being built, you know, and the and the bulldozers are there day and night putting these things up. And there's one guy, uh, Palestinian, a mayor, said to me, he said, we get demolitions, they get settlements. That's, that's how it goes. You won't ever go and see Israeli uh, bulldozers there building a new Palestinian settlement in the West Bank. It just doesn't happen. I mean, there's never been, even in Israel, there's never been a new... Palestinian town built in Israel, and there certainly isn't one uh, being built in, uh, you know, they're, they're just, there's no allowance for them. It's very clear that they want as few Palestinians in there as possible, and the ones that are there to not cause any problems. I remember that first time that we went in, there was two Arab girls came with us as we came across the Allenby Bridge from Jordan. And they were detained for about six hours and yelled and screamed at for what I did not know. It was really that. I didn't know not that that was going to happen. We were all sort of, and they detained our tour leader as well. So it was us. We didn't know, you know, where to go or what to do in, in Palestine and waiting for them to, you know, are they going to release? Are they going to let the rest of our party through? So but these two girls, they got through. They, they knew it was going to happen. And they came through sort of fist pumping and, yeah, we got through that. Let's go. Let's go and see what's going on here. So, yeah, um, but I still met heaps of uh, Israeli people, some wonderful people who support Palestinian rights. So the ladies from a group called Maxim Watch, they go and monitor checkpoints and they do demonstrations. And so there was, you know, a lot of inspiring people there. Who are, And I learned, and I learned, you know, that there's... I also met with Orthodox rabbis who were also anti-Zionists and I met um, Orthodox Jews who were sort of more, you know, supported the government. There was a great range of, of, of ideas, but just the sort of the hopelessness of uh, that I felt there. Like, And yet, you know, the, the Palestinian people, their emphasis on education was really strong. And yet the unemployment was so high. It's, it's almost like, you know, they're not going to just give in and roll over. Uh, their education meant a lot to them. Education was part of their resistance. That's how, how it came across to me. A big commitment to stay there for three months. What year was that? Yeah, yeah, that was 2015. That, that was hard because my language skills were hopeless. We tried to learn a bit over there. 
but the Palestinian people were, were wonderful to us. And, but that, you know, I can remember when the three months was over, I was pretty keen to get home because, you know, I guess just being someone growing up in, in Australia, I just wasn't used to, you know, the poverty and, and was wanting to get back to some nice, clean, you know, white sheets and those sorts of things. But it was, yeah, it was it was pretty scary at times when there were clashes and things like that and uh, some of the settlers were quite scary. I, I made a decision not to speak to settlers because I thought didn't want to provoke them. Other people thought, no, they wanted to have a bit of a chat. But, yeah, that was a big commitment to getting through that. I can remember when I finally got through that, and that was three months just war. Who was there with you? So it was run by a group called the Ecumenical Accompaniment Program in Palestine, Israel. It's run through the the World Council of Churches, and it liaises with the Australian National Council of Churches here. And there was a team of, ooh, how many is there? I think it's about 30 or 40 internationals. So I didn't go with anyone from Australia. I met people over there, and it was people from all over Europe and South America and and Canada and, and that sort of place that all went there. And we were in about seven basements that we were living in, and people had various amounts of experience with Palestine, but we all we lived in a place when we had sort of set jobs to do and um, went to church every Sunday to different churches to see, you know, how they did church and that sort of thing. So it was there was no one I knew. That was all strangers. And what were those set jobs that you were given? Yeah, so you'd get up in the morning and you'd maybe go to a checkpoint where Palestinians are going across into Israel. Uh, just to see what sort of conditions, and some of that was just awful. Four in the morning, freezing cold, just up to, you know, just mud everywhere. Just I can remember just the sort of sad, depressed little faces of these guys going to work, because often it was day work. So, you know, very, very insecure work. Times there, you know, if you just couldn't get through the checkpoint in time before the bus left on the other side, then that was it. You didn't get work that day. Uh, we also went to agricultural gates where people were trying to get access to their own land that was in the seam zone, as they called it, where people were had properties, but it was in this sort of buffer zone between Israel and, and the West Bank. Again, we'd go and monitor them and see, you know, how the guards were treating them. And there were some strange things there. You know, they wouldn't let people in because their jeans were too, too uh, tidy or they had too many packets of cigarettes on them. It was just sort of this arbitrary nature of where you're going to get through it when you did sort of a, a means of control. But also going um, where there was house demolitions to interview people. Or there'd been uh, uh, settler violence or problems with settlers we'd go and interview. We went, did a bit of work with a group called Beit Salem and we followed them around and watched uh, how they investigated different things. So Beit Salem is an Israeli human rights uh, movement that actually uh, employs Palestinians in the West Bank to do, and Israelis to do a lot of their their work and their investigations. We went, yeah, went to churches, visited all sorts of different people to, and, and had speakers come in and, and all sorts of things. So it was really, uh, really, you know, I can remember feeling just like a sponge. You know, we were there all the time trying to just get more and more info because you sort of realised this was a one-off. You weren't going to get a chance like this again. So. You've got to sort of, you know, use it to the full to find out what's going on. Did you live in a communal house or did you live with Palestinians? So it was like a communal house. All the uh, internationals were there. 
yeah, that's how it was. I think they they thought it was better because they wanted to give us a bit more freedom. You know, um, they allowed like some people there, their partners to come over and visit them. And so I think their idea was, you know, okay, what the Westerners do in that house, that's their business. So rather than try, you know, impose what they wanted, which I guess they would have had to do if we were living in their house. So, I mean, I wasn't particularly worried either way, but um, yeah, we were living in a communal house, about six or seven of us in each house. And it was pretty cold during winter and in summer, I wasn't over there in summer, but it was, especially out in the Jordan Valley, really, really hot. I'm talking to activist Craig Nielsen, talking about his previous times working in Palestine as he prepares for a mammoth walk for Palestine in April next year. So you had free time to go around and just see what things were like? Yeah, they made sure that that you had days off, otherwise you'd just burn out. But on those days off, you had to to get out of the placement house, (laughs) so to get right away. And you could go and do things and go travel through Israel. I went and um, there was a Palestinian man in Israel who was doing uh, tours of the demolished villages. He would take you around and show you uh, where the old villages were that had been demolished in in 48, show you around Sakhnin where the Palestinians lived there in the north. So I did something like that. Other people just went and did more touristy things. We spent Christmas Eve at, at Bethlehem which was really wonderful, you know, to be there. And uh, I can remember we all, Christmas Eve, we sat around the whole group and everybody had to sing um, Silent Night in their own language, which was really, yeah, it was it was good fun. So, there, yeah, there was things where we got to go and do what we wanted. It certainly wasn't, you know, some sort of tour where, you know, we were being led around only to see certain things and not others. You had freedom to do, you know, what you want. And the soldiers left you alone? Yeah, we wore um, jackets, these jackets identifying that we were part of this program and ERP has been there for, I think at that time, about 17 years, continuous presence. So they were sort of aware of us. Yeah, they left us alone, but I certainly didn't do anything to provoke them or anything. That was my view. I didn't speak to them. I didn't photograph them or anything like that. I was, you know... It's not like I thought I was going to get, you know, shot at, you know, just for standing there. But just you wouldn't do anything to give them an excuse to, you know, kick you out of the country. Because they knew, you know, why we were there. And they were just tolerating us. Other groups that are sort of maybe a bit more, you know, uh, you know would get involved in demonstrations that were a bit more lively. You know, they might kick them out but we wanted to just be there and it really accompany and support the Palestinian people uh, rather than get involved in sort of demonstrations that might turn violent or something like that. Do you believe you had an impact on their behaviour toward the Palestinians? Oh for sure 100% yeah and, and the way the settlers behaved they behaved when we were there there's not a shadow of a doubt that uh, it changed the equation there especially settlers if they came over, you know, you would got a law over there that if you've got a, a, a paddock or something, a field, and you leave it unploughed, I think for a couple of seasons, then it can be confiscated by the state. And often it'll be a field that's right next to a, a settlement. And so farmers, Palestinian farmers, will be a bit scared to go near there. So we would do something called protective presence, where we would just go out there and stand there while he ploughs his field. And you'd notice 
he felt a lot more comfortable. Also, when there were checkpoints where kids had to go through, they felt a bit better when we were going through and that sort of thing. You definitely see, especially I think knowing that I was an Australian as well, they sort of realised, you know, Australia's about the closest thing. I mean, I, at times I felt like the, the soldiers felt like, you know, nobody's our friend. Uh, Australia's about one of the closest they'll get to it. Our government doesn't do a lot to uh, criticise Israel. Were you able to have interaction with the children or were they sort of a bit frightened of you? Yeah, so we went into a couple of schools and I'm a school teacher and we got them to do a few activities and that was really amazing. I can remember one little girl looked at me and she said, this is the happiest day of my life. Mm. They were so happy to have us there. They drew all drawings for us and we sent them back home and my kids in Australia sent over some Christmas cards and everything. So... No, they were great. We didn't really have that experience. In some of the sort of the Bedouin villages, it was a bit different. But in the schools we went to, one school which was made completely out of tyres, the community got together and found thousands of old tyres and built the school out of tyres and, and cement. And, uh, yeah, they were, they were great. The teachers were great. They were happy to have us in there. And that was a really inspiring sort of moment. So, you know, so far as the personal... You know, you can't do a lot there, um, but but this connecting with people and letting them know that there's people, not everyone's against them, not everyone sees them as being terrorists. There's people who are just not going to buy into that that rhetoric, that that sort of narrative, and um, to know that you're there to support them and, and you're with them, I think, you know, made a huge difference to them emotionally anyway. You could argue that, you know, you know, whether we made any difference in the long run, I don't know. But, you know, you're there to do what you can. Did you get an idea of where the settlers were from? The settlers, you know, the settlements, the main big ones, the ketamine, the finger there, the, the settlement there, we didn't have much to do with them. The, the smaller settlements were a little bit scary. Some of the real ideological settlers are really scary. And the ones we came across in Hebron, were just straight out offensive. They were just yelling abuse at us all day. And so I kept right away from them. But we definitely, there was people who were coming over from Brooklyn, coming over from New York, and, and just displacing Palestinians in, in individual houses. Um, a little old lady Palestinian, she was just kicked out of her house and all her stuff put on the street, in, out on the, uh, the footpath. And there was a, a, a Jewish family from Brooklyn living in her house. And so she just uh, she just um, sort of made a tent and decided to live in the driveway. She wasn't going to move. So there was things like that, just crazy, just crazy stuff that, you know, if you want reconciliation, you just can't allow things like that, you know. But, um, I, you know, I was very hopeful in the end because if you talk to people, the old people there, they will talk about a time when they remember that Jews and Arabs got on fine, whether they were Christian, Muslim, secular, it hasn't, this idea that this has been some conflict going on for ages just isn't true. Over those years, did you make any effort to get to Gaza? Yeah, so we actually made an application to get into Gaza and Hamas uh, said yes, but the Israeli government, they just sort of, they, they just uh, didn't say anything. They don't make a decision and of course your visa's only there for three months and after a while it's too late, you've got to go home anyway. So they can actually make sure that nobody gets through 
and has a look while not saying, well, we forbid anyone. You know, that's, that's the way it was goes. So that was disappointing um, not to get into Gaza, yeah. As a Christian, what did you find out about the Christians in Palestine? Yeah, so there was there was there was Lutherans, there was Baptists, there was Orthodox, there was Catholics. Um, there was lots of them in Bethlehem. Nowhere near as many as there were. Yeah, there was sort of not really any different to Christians that I've met, you know, in in, in Adelaide and in Australia. But they, you know, they they had the same sort of message that the Muslims did. That you know, it's they didn't sit there and tell me, well, you know, the problem is Hamas or the problem is, you know, it's the problem is the Muslims. They they wouldn't say that. I just never heard that. They talk about the occupation and then it's a shared suffering. You know, it doesn't um, discriminate. And they talked about some of their churches that were burnt down and stuff like that, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, pretty much it's all the same. You go to a church service and it looked very much like our church services, except it was in Arab and I didn't understand it. But certainly they, I didn't find anyone there that was... Uh, Telling me that oh, no, there was no Christian Zionist there that I could see uh, in living in the West Bank. I think you'd sort of get over that one pretty quick. <laughs> when did the idea for the walk come? So just a couple of um, years ago, when John did it, uh, John Salisbury did it from Melbourne to uh, Adelaide, and I thought. Oh, it just popped into my head, and then the more I thought about, like, is this doable? And I started to organise and think about, you know, where I would stop and how long I would have to do it, how far I'd have to walk every day, how many, you know, that sort of thing. And it just started to become probably around 20, 2021. I started to tell people, this is what I'm going to do. And I needed a lot of time to organise it too. It's still, the organising is still going on. So, yeah. You must have an, an amazing support team. Yeah, I've got a lot of good close friends um, and family as well that are going to come out and be part of the actual support team. Very difficult to ask people to do that because they've got to give up time. They've got to get time off work and basically just follow me around. Two of my very good friends, Glenn Fordham and, and David uh, Collings, they'll be living with me for 28 days in my camper trailer just as my support team. And so that's, you know... 28 days and often I think we'll be off grid. We won't be able to have a shower and things like that sometimes for six or seven days. So uh, it's going to be interesting. But yeah, they've made a, um, people have made a terrific commitment. And uh, people at FOPO have been terrific. And the Act for Peace have been great as well. What's it going to be like? Are you a walker? No, I'm not actually. I did, did a fair bit of running and do a lot, used to train in the gym lots and lots when I was younger. The walking is so sort of difficult. It's more the load that you just continually go through from day day to day. So I do a fair bit of training, but it's also more of a mental struggle to just keep doing this day after day for, for 87 days. That's the struggle as well. So it's something that was meant to be difficult, and it's also something that I'm not necessarily sure that I can finish because this is what the occupation is. We don't know where it's going. This is the, the burden that Palestinian people have. They, It often looks just totally hopeless, like you can't do it. They don't know if they're going to get there, and yet they've got no choice. They just have to keep going with it. That's all there is. And that's sort of how I see it, I guess. You're actually travelling to Perth to begin the, the journey. Why have you chosen that? 
because um, it was a long way away and I wanted to be something that had sort of a wow factor that people went, whoa, what are you doing that for? I wanted to go from Parliament House to Parliament House and have a meet, you know, have a, a demonstration at Parliament House when we get, get there on um, three months later. Just to make it a political statement as well, going from Parliament House to Parliament House. And hopefully something that people can get, get alongside and also because we're raising money for a charity for kids and pregnant mums, people should be able to get alongside that regardless of who, what side you're on. You know, I think, you know, the vulnerable people, you know, you've got to support no matter what. And the statement you're making from parliament to parliament, that says something about the Australian government's position on yeah, Palestine? The, the, the fact, yeah, the fact that the Australian government just... It, its official policy is a two-state solution, but it... Absolutely does nothing to challenge the uh, the state of Israel in what it does to put blocks in the way of peace. You just can't have a proper peace settlement while you're still building settlements, while you're still uprooting olive trees, you're still confiscating land. You've still got the police raids where they just raid innocent people and arrest them. You can't have that. Those are things are things that are they're roadblocks to peace, and they're they're just so provocative to Palestinian people. It just drives them to despair. And the fact is that in any group of people, if you, they people suffer uh, oppression, there's going to be people who react in an ugly way, and just to meet the ugliness of the oppression. And that's that that will just keep going on until the the group with power that has the power to stop the settlement building, that has the power to do all those things, makes a commitment and actually does something about it. And our government just does nothing to really challenge Israel. Our commitment to a two-state solution is it's just pathetic. It has no teeth. It has nothing to it. It's just something written on paper. Uh, and it's really frustrating and disturbing for me that Australian governments do that. Well, in the few minutes we've got left, Craig... The book you wrote, Israel-Palestine, A Christian Response to the Conflict. Why did you write that? Yeah, it's because I just, I, I, this idea that I hear have from people who are in my church uh, that I used to go to tell me that, you know, Jewish people, they've got this um, inalienable right to take that land uh, and do what they want with it. Um, regardless of you know how, the pain and the suffering it caused to other people, and that this was a biblical message that Jewish people, just by virtue of their Jewishness, uh, have this uh, this right to do this. And I could just see plainly in the Bible that wasn't there; it just wasn't there. And I came across um, Orthodox uh, rabbis who who agreed with me 100%, and particularly an Orthodox history professor called Yaakov Rabkin, who's a professor of history at Montreal University, and he specialises in the sort of conflict between Zionism and Judaism, and he wrote a book uh, called The Enemy From Within. And he was a huge inspiration to me, and I met up with him, and he actually looked over the book, sort of proofread it and everything, and gave hints, uh, gave you know ideas for it. So it's really a challenge for Christians to read, evangelical, sort of what I'd call conservative Christians to read, that want to hear another side, of, uh, you know, a biblical side to that argument. So I, that's what I wrote. Well, it's not really written for, you know, secular people. It, it has a lot of uh, biblical material in it. So it's really written for 
uh, evangelical Christians and Pentecostal Christians, those sorts of people. Okay, well, I can wish you well, Craig, and perhaps talk to you when you get back. Yes, I hope you do. hope you be there. Um, if you can come over to Adelaide to Parliament House, that'll be great. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Craig. I've been speaking with Craig Nielsen from Adelaide, preparing for Amanda's walk from Perth to Adelaide for Palestine in April next year. A, uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're allowed no closer than the bridge down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. <laughs> I direct that you all leave now. Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to gecko.org.au. Gecko, 30 years fighting for forests. Get down to the party. Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter. Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday morning serving of union and working news, current events, opinion and talkback. Every Saturday, 7.30 till 9am, here on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10 a.m. on 3CR Community Radio, 855 a.m. on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate and what we can do about it all. Cluster bombs and Australia. No, we don't manufacture them. We haven't used them. But we have, together with 109 nations, with 13 additional signatories, adopted the Convention 
on cluster munitions. Then why is the Australian government not condemning President Biden's decision to supply Ukraine forces with cluster bombs? That's the question asked by Richard Ranoski, AO, former Australian diplomat, General Manager of Radio Australia, adjunct professor at the universities of Canberra and Sydney, and an author to boot. I spoke with Richard recently, and the first question was, when were they first manufactured, and by whom? Germany invented cluster bombs. They called them butterfly bombs at the end of the Second World War. They were crude uh, by today's standards, but they were meant to scatter smaller bombs around a certain area to, <laughs> to, to wipe out enemy troops. By about 10 years later, about 34 countries were building some or other variant of cluster bombs. But the most prolific users have been particularly the United States. And the United States used them prolifically in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos, uh, even today, 50 years after the end of the Indochina conflict. Uh, farmers are getting their legs blown off, uh, plowing their fields, their paddies in Laos particularly and, and uh, Vietnam as well as Cambodia. The, the Americans use them in Iraq. Oh, they've used them in Latin America too. Russia's used them in the Chechen war. Uh, France has used them. Israel has used them against Lebanon and other countries. And so it's, it's become quite a, a prolific form of exterminating people. Yes, well, not necessarily the fighting people. It's the civilians who pay the price. Well, this is the point, Jan. The, the fact is that 20 to 40% of the bombers released from a larger canister uh, don't explode immediately and they are scattered around and up to 20 or 30 years later, they're still capable of exploding. And that is what has happened. The kids have had their legs blown off when they've seen what looks like a toy or a sweet uh, in, in a long-forgotten battlefield. Um, as I said, they've been... They've, they've, They've had enormous destruction, destructive effect in Indochina as well. So that's why in 2010, a convention, or 2008, uh, the, the United Nations convened a, a meeting to try to ban cluster bombs. And by 2010, about 113 nations had signed on to it, including Australia, uh, to ban cluster bombs. Several countries did not join, including the United States, notoriously, of course, and Israel. I think India, Pakistan and China did not sign as well, and Russia. So that's the situation as it is now. So you're talking about at least 50 years before they were banned. Why did it take so long when they're such a devastating weapon? Oh, because uh, people are only beginning to realise later on, and governments were only beginning to realise later on what devastating effect they had. I think the Indochina war particularly was uh, was instrumental in this. Such destruction and damage was caused in all those countries that people got together, countries, nations got together, governments did, and decided that they had to ban them. So that's what happened. A growing horror at the devastating effect on civilian life. And what's the story today, Richard? Who's, who's got them? Who's using them? Okay, the story, it's very hard to cut through the unrelenting propaganda about the Ukrainian war. I do think Russians have, the, 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 the Russia has used them, 
Although I think probably fairly carefully, and I'm not sure in how many how many cases. But what's happening now? The big fuss is that Biden has decided to send cluster bombs to Ukraine to Zelensky because the Ukrainians, he says, are running out of artillery ammunition. But you know, cluster bombs are a different story, a, a level above indestructive effect. Uh, artillery shells, but that's what's that's what's happening. There's been quite a reaction. The French, the British, uh, I think Canada, other countries, many countries have protested and said, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be doing it. Australia, although we signed the convention, Albanese appears not to have protested to our great and powerful friend. He has not protested to President Biden saying you shouldn't be doing this. Is there any idea of how many countries are still manufacturing them? No, not really. I don't have those details, Jan. Um, I imagine, though, that uh, you'd find uh, that the, the main armaments powerhouses in Europe, as well as the United States, are continuing to make them. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if uh, Germany and uh, probably France and other European armaments manufacturers are making them. Uh, certainly the United States is. I think Russia would be too. For what purpose? Well, they're devastating weapons, as you say. Uh, Biden has said that the cluster bombs he's supplying to Ukraine will only have a 2.3% chance of, uh, of non-explosives. In other words, it's a very small percentage of the, the whole. I think that's ridiculous to try and make some finely calibrated figure about how many are going to explode or not. The fact is that there will be some left in the ground and later on people, civilians, kids are going to be killed. Well, as you said, it's a number of years since the convention was adopted. Over 100 countries have signed. What pressure since then has there been on the countries who haven't signed to do the right thing? In any pressure, any more than there's any pressure on the members of the um, the nuclear weapon states, pressure on them to honour their commitment under Article 6 of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to get rid of their weapons if other countries don't develop their own nuclear weapons. I think probably there's a stasis about this. There's passivity. There's no attempt, in my, to my knowledge, of any organised protest about cluster bombs, who makes them and what they're used for. Biden's latest... Uh, adventure to give them to Ukraine will probably stir a good deal of feeling and there might be some pressure in future to get those countries who haven't signed onto the uh, convention against cluster bombs to do so. But people are protesting, of course, in the United States as well. We are in Australia. Just go back to what was happening particularly in Cambodia, Vietnam, Lai, where an unknown, I suppose, number of those dreadful bombs were, were dropped. Children and yes. farmers are still being killed all these years later. How long do these bombs last in the ground? Who's to say how long is a piece of string? I mean, they're made of, I think, trinitrotoluene, TNT, uh, a highly effective explosive with a devastating effect. They're still unearthing bombs, unexploded bombs in London from the Blitz. They're still finding bombs around Europe from the Second World War, so you know that that's what that's ne that's nearly that's almost three quarters of a century. Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam are a lot 
after that in the 60s and early 70s. I imagine the bombs that are still lying around in paddy fields around that Indochina, many of them are still there and, and could explode whenever someone, you know, bumps into them. So it, it's an ongoing problem. There have been efforts to get rid of them. I was ambassador in Vietnam when we were trying to finish all the unfinished business of the Vietnam War, including having a missing in action mission and, and looking into the into Agent Orange, the effect of that. But we didn't have anything about cluster bombs. Whether Australia since then has done that, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think there's been any attempt to do that. You mentioned Israel before. I believe that they've used them against the Lebanese and the Palestinians. When was this and how serious was this? Oh, goodness. When, when was the major uh, invasion of Lebanon? I think about 2006, 2007. But I wouldn't be quite sure about the debate, but there, about the date. But Israel did at one stage invade Lebanon, and uh, I think they used cluster bombs there. That's, that's the reports I've read. And, of course, they have used them against Palestinians. So it's, it's an ongoing problem, Jan. It's not something that's uh, happened just once, but it seems to be a repetitive thing. Well, where, where do we stand at the moment, Richard? How can these countries be made accountable? They can't. <laughs> where do we stand? We stand with a great deal of confusion in the international community. We stand that there are individual groups, well-meaning people with conscience, some of them very highly qualified, prominent citizens, especially in the United States and in Australia and in Britain and many other countries who protest all the time about the fact that, uh, that uh, the, the great powers haven't signed on to non-proliferation. They still have nuclear weapons. Not only that, but they're increasing their, their sources of them. Cluster bombs are simply one of the lot of munitions and killing instruments that many people are concerned about. But there hasn't been, uh, until this latest announcement by Biden, to my knowledge, any major effort on the part of the citizens of, of the world to, to try and outlaw these things. It's come up again now. There's indignation. There's, and it all relates to giving Ukraine any more weapons and this fuss about whether Ukraine should be more thankful for what has been given. <laughs> all these things are going on. But cluster bombs are simply part of the mix. It's part of the awful situation we have in uh, Europe at present, which has all kinds of uh, possible effects in the spreading of nuclear weapons. I mean, Putin has suggested he might use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Let's hope that that doesn't happen, because if it did, I think the, the balloon will go up and there'll be that will lead to unmitigated and spreading of nuclear weapons, nuclear war. Can we talk a bit more about Australia's stand on this recent announcement by Biden? Has any government minister made a comment on it? No, to my knowledge, not. I heard Richard Miles, acting prime minister yesterday, in long, tendentious interview talking about how Australia is doing its best by Ukraine and how he's got no problems with NATO extending its influence its reach into the into the Pacific, something that Paul Keating strongly objected to, and I do too, and many other thinking people do as well. But uh, cluster bombs didn't come up. I think, unfortunately, we've got a prime minister who is not particularly uh, sophisticated when it comes to 
foreign policy. We have a foreign minister who's trying her best to bring sense to the government in terms of relations with China, and yet she's wedged between two hawks. Albanese, on the one hand, who knows little about foreign policy but is determined to follow the United States, and Richard Miles, on the other, a defence minister, I think, not very well informed about defence or about Australia's capacities and what we should be doing, who is in lockstep with the United States in developing uh, nuclear-propelled submarines, which is a very big mistake in my view. Just looking at Ukraine, if these weapons do go to Ukraine, where are they going to end up? They're not going to end up in Russia, are they? They're going to end up in the fields in Ukraine, aren't they? Yeah, look, the main fighting, as you know, at present is in eastern Ukraine. Don't forget, Ukraine is a big country. It's bigger than France. It's the biggest country in Europe outside Russia. It's in the Donbass region of the eastern Ukraine, the Russian-speaking, coal-producing industrial region of Donetsk and Luhansk and Zaporizhia, where the nuclear one very big nuclear power plant is. Uh, that's where the fighting is going at present. So... In answer to the question, where are these bombs going to end up? They'll end up in that area. I think the Ukrainians have no compunction about that. They, don't, they have been fighting. The Ukrainian government under Zelensky and before him have been, uh, have been attacking since early in the uh, 2010s up to now parts of the Donbass region because they're Russian-speaking and they don't like them. But I think that's where they'll end up, in the, in the Russian part of what is still Ukraine but is now is becoming independent states with Russian protection. That's, that's their aim. And uh, that's where the uh, cluster bombs will end up. So that's where civilians are going to be killed. And then they bring them in, they fire them off, they end up in the fields. Well, they end up they go, in the fields, they yeah. end up in the factories, they yeah. end up in, in the cities. Some will be found, but many won't. And so they're going to uh, later on detonate and kill people. And, of course, the president says, well, don't worry about it. I'll clean them up after. <laughs> he doesn't say much at all at present. You mean Zelensky? Yes. I think he's, uh, uh, he's got wishful thinking about driving the Russians out of uh, the uh, Donbass. I don't think that's going to happen. In fact, there are many accounts now, individual accounts, where the commentators are saying that Ukraine has just about lost this war that the NATO countries are sick and tired of giving him more and more expensive weaponry and that uh, Russia will prevail. We don't know the, whether that is true yet, but that seems to be what what's, uh, a lot of people, more and more people are thinking that. And it seems to be a, a classic case of the first casualty of war is truth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, <laughs> that's been the case in the Ukraine ever since uh, Russia's first uh, invasion. What do you know about Zelensky prior Not to... Much. Uh, uh, he claims to be Jewish, I wouldn't doubt that, and he uses that as a defence against those who say that he's uh, a proto-Nazi, that he's, he's in favour of, of right-wing extremists in the uh, Ukrainian armed forces. It's a mixture. He is a mixture. Don't forget he was an actor and a comedian before he became uh, president of the Ukraine. And in that capacity, he had a, a, a very a capable way of relating to people, and he still does that. I mean, he, he's part theatre, part seriousness, part comedy. He, he wears the same khaki T-shirt and trousers, even in the most austere company. 
this is part of his shtick, his uh, way of wanting to be. But it's all really part of an act. People, uh, some commentators think that he's a complete puppet of Washington. I wouldn't go so far as that at all. I think he's got a lot of individuality and a lot of feeling towards his country. But um, to what extent he is being driven or guided or led or directed from Washington, I'm not too sure. I've got a lot of money. Well, finally, Richard, you you spoke about people opposing what's happening at the moment, the weapons going to Ukraine. Paul Keating comes up and to me he says a lot of serious things. It gets shot down in flames. Would you have expected it would be as vehement as it has been? The way he's been treated. Yeah, we've got a big debate going on in Canberra. On the one side, you've got the intelligence military community who are really guiding the government in terms of uh, fear of China and sticking with the AUKUS agreements and rah, 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 you know, we're going to be powerful again. We're going to have nuclear-propelled submarines. It's all a lot of nonsense, really. Uh, On the other, you've got more thoughtful people in Canberra saying, hey, this isn't on. We shouldn't be doing this. We should have much more neutral, independent position. Of course, America will remain our friends, but, you know, we've got to get on with the Asians and we certainly have to get on much better with China. On the side of the Hawks, that's where the pro-helping Ukraine lobby lie. That's where the people who want to drive to destroy Russia, or at least to make it a lot weaker than it is, that's where they come from as well. So there's a divide in Canberra, and I'm afraid the government at present is mesmerised by submarines, by AUKUS, by sticking with the United States. They're not really thinking ahead. And many of my colleagues, senior diplomats and others, very thoughtfully are saying, hey, this isn't good. We, we, you know, we've spent our careers working for Australia's foreign policy. In many cases, we supported what they're doing with the United States. We don't any longer. It's my fear. That's my worry. And finally, again, the consequences of all this money and resources being put into preparation for war, whether it's supporting Ukraine or it's, it's, it's targeting China, is the fact that when other parts of the economy need help, you know, nursing homes, we can't, we're going to close nursing homes because we can't or aren't able to find nurses. Yes, yes. Look, you're right here, but I don't, I don't have the figures. It's just that defence and the defence lobby, the defence industry seems to have a, no, a, a licence to simply spend money without accountability. The public have not been told, for example, what comprises the $368 billion that is supposed to purchase eight nuclear propelled submarines when we could get the same number for about a tenth of the price. It's just a ridiculous situation that we have. But defence seems to be unaccountable to the public and to the government. And, and as you say, uh, money should be spent, a lot more money should be spent on, you know, aged care, <laughs> of which I'm getting towards <laughs> that area myself, and kindergartens and children and, and uh, hospitals. So that's what we should be spending much more money on. But look, I'm not, I'm not an economist here. I don't keep up with the latest statistics, but I would myself want the government to be more accountable and more transparent in spending this enormous amount of money on submarines. It needs to be justified. But I'm afraid the Australian public seem to not be too concerned about that, except some of us. And I've been speaking with Richard Bronosco, AO, former Australian diplomat, general manager of Radio Australia, adjunct professor at the universities of Canberra and Sydney,
and an author. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.